Imagine living in a world where everyone looks vaguely familiar, but you never know for certain exactly who anyone is. Your old classmates, your co-workers, your friends, and even your family members all can appear at first glance to be friendly strangers who seem to know you. That's what life is like for people with prosopagnosia or face blindness. Historically, the disorder was thought to be rare, but more recent research suggests it may affect as many as one in 50 people. Last year, Sadie Dingfelder found out she was one of them. Sadie is a former colleague of mine. She used to be an editor at APA's magazine, and I later hired her to be editor of our website. After a lifetime of thinking that there was something just a little bit different about her brain, Sadie took part in a study at Harvard Medical School that finally gave her some clarity about her condition. She wrote about the experience for the Washington Post magazine. So what is it like to have prosopagnosia? And what have psychologists and other scientists learned about the causes of face blindness? Can it be treated? If so, how? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. If you enjoy Speaking of Psychology, the conversation doesn't have to stop when the podcast is over. Get unlimited access to hundreds of videos about the latest in psychology for just one low price by registering for access to APA's 2020 virtual convention. Start with some of our selected videos featuring psychology's biggest names discussing such topics as COVID-19, racism, and stigma. Or let your curiosity take over and use our on-demand library to explore any topic. Go to convention.apa.org podcast. That's convention.apa.org slash podcast. We actually have two guests today. Joining Sadie and me is Dr. Joseph DeGudis, a neuroscientist and experimental psychologist at Harvard Medical School and the Boston VA. He studies the neuroscience of face blindness and has developed treatment programs to help those with face blindness improve their ability to recognize faces. He runs the study that Sadie participated in and was the person who confirmed her self-diagnosis. Welcome to Speaking of Psychology. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Sadie, let's start with the question that I posed in the intro. What is it like to have prosopagnosia? When you look at people, what do you see? Yeah, I well, a lot of people think that um, face blind people maybe just see a blur where faces. That's definitely not true. I have good visual acuity. Um, my problem is I just don't remember faces. Like the second I'm looking away from them, they're gone from my memory. I um and I was kind of astounded to find out that everyone else has like a, a almost photographic uh, visual memory for faces specifically. Dr. DeGudis, what does the research tell us about why prosopagnosics can't do this thing that other people do so effortlessly, recognizing and remembering faces? Is the problem memory, perception, or perhaps both? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that um, the research shows right now in our, our kind of recent results have have found kind of two different maybe subtypes. So one, a more of a perceptual subtype where you can't tell faces apart that are right in front of you. And then there's also this more of this memory uh, component where, uh, you know, the kind of like you were saying in the intro, uh, prosopagnosics can have this vague kind of feeling, uh, but they don't have this kind of rich, robust kind of, once they see somebody where they, where all this other information about the person comes back to them automatically. Um, and, you know, people are remarkably good at, at faces. And I think that this is, um, one of the things that it could be, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, 
it looks like you know the face maybe um, exploded in 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 the genetic kind of variation. And in some ways, I think a lot of um, you know we capitalize on this, and we are able to kind of recognize individuals by their faces. And um, in other species, like for instance, penguins, they don't have quite a you know maybe people are like, well, if I were a penguin, I could recognize <laughs> penguin faces, but they they, their faces the don't. They don't vary as much. So the human face is exploded in, in variability. And, you know, our brains have, have kind of um, maybe evolved to capitalize on that. Uh, and I think with prosopagnosics, yeah, there's these very subtle um, deficits that maybe accumulate and uh, they're not able to capitalize on all this variability. And the, one of the remarkable things, too, I want to just say is it it's a pretty specific disorder. I think we keep as scientists we see that um, these people are, you know, have, have normal and in, in sometimes above average, like intellectual abilities and other abilities. Um, so it's like one of these developmental disorders that's very, seems pretty, like very specific, you know, um, in comparison to other developmental disorders. So it seems like this vision and visual memory uh, specific disorder. What's actually happening in brains like Sadie's when they see people's faces? What have you learned from brain imaging studies about where this disorder originates in the brain? Yeah, so I think one of the things that we're finding is that there's kind of these two uh, perceptual processes, and I know I know Sadie's results, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna totally go into her results, but but basically a lot of prosopagnosics um, have trouble with putting all the parts of the face together into a, a, a complete whole. So this is something we do automatically. You can call it uh, holistic processing or gestalt processing, and it's it's something that is very fast and automatic. Uh, the other thing that we're finding is that a lot of the prosopagnosics have particular trouble with uh, kind of being sensitive to the eye region. So the eyes hold hold a lot of information with regard to identity. So that's something that um, you know one of the main mechanisms of like these kind of perceptual deficits are both maybe a combination of these feature, uh, lack of feature sensitivity, and then a, and a difficulty with putting the, the face together into a whole. Um, so that's on the, on the perceptual side of things. And, um, and then on the more on the memory side, I kind of, um, it's, it's kind of this, this type of memory that we call recollection memory. So uh, recollection memory, again, it's like kind of taking a face and making all these associations with all this other information. And usually when you see a face, all this extra uh, semantic information, like their name, their job, when you last saw them, comes flooding back without any effort. Now, when a prosopagnosic, and I think Sadie can say more about this, sees a face, they don't get this flood of, of information. A lot of times they're, they're, um, they're met with this kind of vague sense of, of, of knowing. And we call that, you know, familiarity memory. Um, and sometimes and that was kind of coined back in the eighties as the butcher on the bus phenomenon. When you see somebody out of context, um, let's say your butcher or a barista that you frequent and you can't place who it is. Now, prosopagnosics, and I'd love to hear more of what Sadie says. It, it this happens, this might happen with very, very familiar people. Um, Whereas in with people who don't have prosopagnosia, this may just happen with a new acquaintance. Does this happen to you, Sadie? Do do you have a butcher on the bus? Oh yeah, I have a, I have a lot of trouble um, 
identifying people out of context. Um, but I have a lot of trouble identifying people who are right in their normal context too. Um, I was just on the elevator in my apartment, in my apartment building. And, um, this woman was like, Oh, Hey Sadie. And I had no idea who she was. We were both wearing masks. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I have no idea who you are. And she's <laughs> like, Oh, I cat sat for you like last week. And I was like, Oh, cool. <laughs> so, um, yeah, she was in my building and I could, did not recognize her. But the masks make it really hard. That that has to be tough, not only for people like Sadie, but what happens to uh, children at various levels of development? I mean, if we're going around wearing masks for the next year or more, Dr. DeGutis, is that going to have any effect on their development, do you think? You know, I don't think we know, but I mean, I think that the, um, uh, you know, the face recognition system needs to have a lot of input. And a lot of different faces. And actually, they found that some people that grow up in kind of smaller towns even, you know, may not be as good at face recognition than people who grow up in larger cities that have more exposure. And there's a little bit, there's some evidence that there may be these kind of critical periods uh, for face recognition where you, um, uh, you know, maybe you can differentiate um, all faces. And this is something called, like related to the other race effect where you may be able to differentiate all faces of all different ethnicities. And then after a while, you're, you, you kind of, whatever ethnicity you're most exposed to, you get better at that. Um, so there may be these critical periods. I, I hope, um, I think it's an interesting question if this is affecting development or if, or if we can kind of rely on, you know, neuroplasticity or the ability for the brain to kind of uh, reorganize and recover. But I do think just seeing you know, part of the face may disrupt this holistic processing and kind of putting all the face together. Um, so it could. I wonder if, um, like, all the kids are on TikTok, right? I wonder if um, exposure to faces that are flattened on a screen is like can make up for it. I, I guess we need research. I, it, it's really not fair to ask you, Dr. Degouda, since you're not a developmental psychologist. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that, yeah, I think people are still seeing a lot of faces on, on TV and on the screen. I mean, it, it could be slightly different than interacting with people in a more kind of face-to-face -face or... Um, but, um, but actually a lot of, some of the prosopagnosics kind of have, have mentioned that faces seem flat to them. And I guess I just wanted to ask you, Sadie, is that, is that something that you, I, 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 you know, I mean, it's hard to kind of have insight into this, but, you know, um, do you see faces as being flat? Do you see them as, or do you see them as being kind of three-dimensional? I have nothing really to compare it to because I see everything as flat because my eyes are not aligned correctly. So I only use one at a time and do not have binocular vision, which is another thing I kind of discovered as an adult and didn't realize why it was very exciting to figure out like why I could never catch a fly ball. It wasn't entirely my fault. <laughs> and is that unusual that this non-stereo vision would be associated with face blindness? Yeah. People have found that um, difficult, you know, like with, with uh, eye movement kind of issues like strabismus or amblyopia, that they're... That that um, prosopagnosics have a higher incidence. Now, people haven't exactly figured out why, but that is something that um, that we've noticed and other labs have noticed. That maybe so, maybe kind of using your eyes together to create a three D um, face is, is an important aspect of 
of you know face perception and recognition. Some of us, uh, Sadie probably included, learned about face blindness by reading a fascinating essay in 2010 in the New Yorker magazine by the British neurologist Dr. Oliver Sacks. He described a life in which he avoided other people and not even recognizing his own face in the mirror. Dr. Degutis, how common is that type of coping? Well, and I think that there's we we kind of see a couple different variants of of coping strategies and some you know so one of the things we're looking into are is is whether prosopagnosics are more like introverted or extroverted and we didn't find anything there but but I think what what some prosopagnosics do is they're they just are go out there in the world and they're nice to everybody and they're just overwhelmingly smiling and 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 you know, in a couple of the prosopagnosics that um, I studied while I was at the University of California, Berkeley, I just remember seeing them from like a hundred yards away, and they, I could just—they're just beaming a smile and looking around at everybody. And I think that that's something that—I um, mean, it's probably a lot of work to do that, um, but I think that's one of the strategies. Is like you just kind of half pretend like you know everybody until proven otherwise. Um, but I think some, maybe some other prosopagnosics, you know, uh, get feel more anxious about, you know, social settings, interactions, and um, and that might not be for everybody. But I, I, I kind of, you know, I defer to Sadie because I know that sometimes, uh, you know, you've 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 mentioned that you might use a little bit of that strategy. Um, yeah, though, def- I definitely uh, and deep like very friendly to everyone all the time, and um, that's totally a coping mechanism because like anyone could end up being like a good friend that, so you don't want to miff or, you know, um, you don't want to hurt someone's feelings. So you just like, anyway, this strategy at one time caused me to talk to a woman who quickly turned out to be a total stranger on the street. And I tricked her into thinking that she knew me. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's great. And I mean, and we talked for like five minutes and then I'm like, okay, gotta run. And like, she looked so confused and I kind of felt happy to like have inflicted my confusion on someone else. Um, but <laughs> it wasn't very nice, but it wasn't intentional until I realized. No, Sadie, I remember a few years ago, I was walking in front of the building for lunch and you came up the street and I said, hey, Sadie. And, and you stopped and you said hello, but then you said, oh, oh, I was afraid I might run into some people from, from work if I walk past here. And, and I didn't know, and maybe you didn't even know at that time that you had face blindness, but you covered very well. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the thing about developmental disabilities is that uh, you just grow up coming up with lots of clever strategies and you have no idea that they're strategies and you just assume everyone else is doing the exact same thing. So um, I really thought I was like maybe a little bad with faces, but like completely on the normal curve. And then it turns out I am really quite exceptionally bad. (laughs) (laughs) And proud of it. (laughs) I think there is actually, you know, in our, in our testing of people, there's quite a range. Like some people, will say they're really suffering, like that it, it hurts their their employment uh, opportunities, uh, that it really affects their social lives, um, that it, it, it really creates a lot of social anxiety and, and difficulties. Um, but then there's other people that, you know, maybe are, you know, have figured out ways to compensate. I think um, making a very kind of like specific context, I know we we gave a talk at uh, the Google headquarters, and 
we had a couple of prosopagnosics there and they said that they they had very specific people they interacted with and they knew where everybody sat and they and they only and so they kind of set up their lives in a way that um that would help them recognize people and they didn't have these situations where they were you know thrown into a situation where they had to recognize everybody out of context or on the fly or so um but i think you know some people you know this is just like an annoyance and other people really can make a big difference in in their in their life and in socializing i actually kind of think that it gave me a little bit of um a a superpower in terms of like since i've been practicing talking to strangers my entire life um as a reporter it is very easy to like connect with um people um and I think a lot of even like professional reporters get anxiety about talking to strangers, just walking up to a stranger and talking to them. And I have no problem doing that because I have been doing that my entire life. Can can we talk about treatments? I know, Sadie, you've had some treatments. And Dr. DeGudis, maybe you can explain some of what you have done and, and how well these treatments work. Um, well, I guess, I guess the first thing I want to say before the, the treatment side of it is that, and this is something that, you know, Sadie, you can talk about it because you've written about, but I think that just raising awareness, I think if people know about this, I mean, this is one of these things where you grow up in, you know, when you grow up, you know about how good you are at math and you know how good you are at sports and you know how, how good you are. But in some ways, like a lot of people, you know, they may kind of think they have a problem with face recognition, but it's not something that is as easy. You can say, well, maybe I just don't pay attention or I'm, I'm kind of lazy or I don't know that I don't know what it is. So I guess just raising awareness, having people know if they have this thing. And I think that has allowed people to either, you know, have a better understanding of, of, you know, I, Oh, I can tell somebody, Oh, I have prosopagnosia and this is, and this is what happens. Um, so like, you know, destigmatizing when you, when you, uh, miss somebody <laughs> from and misrecognize somebody or you, or you walk right past them. You're like, Hey, sometimes I'm going to just walk right past you and, it's not because I'm aloof and I don't care. I just have prosopagnosia. So that is like a big thing to uh, raise awareness and get and get the kind of word out. And I think it really can has given people a lot of relief and insight into their lives. Um, and um, yeah, maybe if, say if you want to talk about that before, and I can. But I, we have training programs. I'll talk. I'll, I can talk about that. But I, I just also want to say to you to chime in about how powerful that has been. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, it felt like uh, a central mystery in my life was suddenly sort of cleared up. Like, I used to be worried that I was very self-centered because I could never remember people's names or um, if there was something, you know, something like wrong with me at like the spiritual level or something. And it was really fun just to learn that like my fusiform face area is not working very well. And, um, you know, it doesn't it doesn't like reflect poorly on me as a human being. Which is a part of the brain that we haven't really talked about, the fusiform face area. Yes. Apparently that's where you recognize faces in your brain. What are the treatments and how do they work? Um, so right now there's a couple different uh, avenues that people have explored. Um, but one is to do this kind of computer-based uh, training and that's focused on either kind of like, you know, um, matching faces or, um, getting better at kind of being sensitive to the, uh, um, the configuration of features. So that's something that there's been maybe, uh, four or five studies that have looked at that and, and shown some benefit. Um, 
We're also uh, looking into uh, some memory training that targets kind of improving recollection memory, um, which is, uh, you know, trying to be, you know, take a more effortful approach to, you know, taking a face and just adding all this information um, and trying to, um, you know, kind of actually create a narrative around the face and process the face more deeply and make more connections to things like, oh, do, you know, how does the face make you feel? Uh, how extroverted or introverted is the face? Um, you know, and these are kind of judgments that prosopagnosics can do. They can kind of say, ooh, yeah, I'm, this face is attractive or I think this face is trustworthy or, and we're trying to actually, you know, have the face information and also these other, um, you know, things like their name and their profession be processed more deeply, making like a story about the face in order to try to get that, um, that feeling of recollection, that, that, that automatic kind of like, oh, okay, that's, that's Sadie. And I recognize her and I know that she's, uh, you know, here, all this kind of other, um, contextual and semantic information comes back. So, um, another, another kind of avenue that people have explored is, um, actually oxytocin, which is this kind of neuropeptide, um, that they showed that actually you can, if you squirt a little bit of oxytocin, um, nasal oxytocin, that, uh, prosopagnosics got better at, at face recognition temporarily. So, and it looks like it, it maybe the mechanism is by focusing more on the eye region. So, um, uh, but I guess the training, um, is still a little bit at its infancy. It's still one of these things that where, um, I think what we've proven is that, you know, for years and years, people thought face recognition was kind of set in stone. And if you damage the face recognition system or it never developed properly, that it was, that was that. But I think what we've shown is that it can be, uh, you know, rehabilitated or enhanced. Um, now we're still talking about, you know, modest improvements. So I don't think, uh, I, I think one of the things I want to caution against is this is not like a cure. It's definitely an experimental treatment that, um, it works for some people and, and it doesn't work as well for others. Sadie, have you tried the oxytocin? No, no one's given me oxytocin, but I would totally try it if someone wants to send some over. <laughs> you got to go back to Harvard. <laughs> How sticky is, is the training? Do you have to, is it sort of like going to the gym? Do you have to keep doing it all the time? Yeah. I mean, I think also, you know, Sadie, you can answer this question, but I think it's something where you do it um, for, you know, a couple of months and then uh, it usually lasts for, you know, two or three months. And then it kind of, then you kind of go back to the, the way that you were processing faces before. Um, Sadie, I don't know. Uh, what was, what was it like for you when you kind of went through the training and then? It was interesting. It I think, yeah, after the, at first, like, it felt like sort of a developed, like I, I felt like, um, after the training, I was like a little bit better. And then like in the weeks following, I kind of got even better. And then, um, it's been like sort of a long decline since then, though you've retested me, so you can tell me if that's accurate. But um, and in terms of like it being a modest improvement, I think that I um, like, for instance, I recognized a random dude in a coffee shop and um, and for who lives in my building. And I like I had to ignore him because I didn't feel like talking to him. And I think it might have been like the first time in my life I intentionally ignored someone so um, it's not necessarily like something I want to do all the time. So I didn't do any boosters. 
<laughs> well, Dr. Tagutis, let me ask you, you published a study where you looked at whether people's self-reports about their face recognition ability matched up with whether they actually had prosopagnosia. What did you find? Do most people with prosopagnosia realize they have it? And should we be testing kids? Is this something that we should be adding to the standard battery of tests that we give to children? Yeah. So I, I think that um, this idea that a lot of people are walking around um, and they, they have no idea they have prosopagnosia. I think there's always, and you know, this, I, you know, I think that we're finding that that's um, people may think that they're like, man, I think I'm below average. I think this idea that you have no idea that you have any face recognition de deficits is false. So most of our prosopagnosics that come to the lab or go through the screening, um, it, a lot of it, a lot of times they say like, well, um, I think I'm bad at faces, but then we're like, oh, you're, you're really, really bad. And they're like, oh, I didn't realize I was like in the 0.001 percentile of, of people. But, um, I think people do, uh, become aware of this. And usually it's, it's around like, um, junior high or high school that people kind of first become aware that this is a, this is a thing. And, um, so I think this is, and that's also when these social interactions are really important and, um, they may have had these kind of salient events in their lives that happened during that time. So, um, I think people, people do, uh, they have some, some insight into their face recognition abilities. Um, but I, yeah, I think testing children is a great um, kind of direction that the field needs to go into. It has been tough um, to kind of get at this because the memory system is developing. Uh, who knows if this is just going to be like, um, you know, in a few years, if this is something that is uh, going to kind of, they're going to grow out of it. I mean, face recognition itself doesn't really peak until your early 30s. Um, so... Uh, but I think there are some challenges with with identifying children. But if we could identify children, that would be great because I think some of the suffering and some of the difficulties that prosopagnosics report in like middle school and high school, um, it would be really wonderful to try to avoid. I mean, middle school and high school is, is rough for everybody, but I think it's particularly hard for prosopagnosics. Is there a genetic component to this, Sadie? You were you were apparently born with this. Are there others in your family who you think maybe have this? Yes, my. I mean, I I think my uncle um, has face blindness. He disagrees, but <laughs> I remember once. I mean, one time we were at Thanksgiving, and he said to my brother, like oh, are you Sadie's roommate or something? And Saul's like, no, I'm your one nephew who you've known since I was born. And Aaron was like, oh. Anyway, <laughs> um, my uncle was like, uh, oh, yeah, right. Um, so I just think, yeah. I don't know why anyone would be in denial about it. It's a pretty cool disorder to have. We're in such good company. We've got Oliver Sacks. We have, um, what's the chimpanzee researcher? Oh, Jane Goodall. Yeah, Jane right? Goodall. Yeah. Yeah, I was really surprised to read about that. I mean, there she was working with all these chimps that she had to recognize. I mean, Sadie, do you recognize your dog? <laughs> you oh, know. oh, actually, you're a cat person. <laughs> well, I'm also a bird watcher, right? Um, and so there's not a lot of uh, it's. I guess I don't have to recognize individual birds though very often. Um, They're all little brown birds. <laughs> but, you know. Also, the craziest one is um, 
Chuck Close, the uh, who who draws those huge, beautiful portraits, right. and of course he's obsessed with faces because they're such a puzzle. Um, I think it's really cool that he channeled that through his art. So overall, Sadie, do you think knowing this is what you have has changed your life? You know, I, yeah, definitely. I, I wish I had known as a kid, honestly, because I had so much trouble making friends. And I just assumed it was because I was weird, which isn't incorrect. But um, if knowing <laughs> the specifics would have been very helpful because I could have, you know, maybe I could have like used pictures. And I, I Later in college, before I knew I was face blind, I did make flashcards for myself of everyone who lived in my dorm. Um, it didn't actually help that much, though, so... I don't know. <laughs> but I do. I think knowing about yourself is always powerful. Um, and you're, and, uh, and it helps you sort of work around your issues and know not to. Well, and then I can just tell people, too. I tell people I'm face blind all the time. I don't know if they believe me. So sometimes I say, Google it. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> Well, Dr. Tagutis, there may be some people listening to this thinking, um, I have trouble recognizing faces. I wonder if I might have prosopagnosia. Where should they go to find out? Yeah. So um, there's a, I think, I mean, one of the, um, we just started another another study uh, to look at um, more of these memory problems and and also to train uh, memory and focus on memory. That's at faceblind.harvard.edu. Um, and there's also some great resources at faceblind.org. So um, those would be two kind of good websites to start with. And um, you can do some self-tests and, and we can send you some, um, uh, some other tests to take and, and also give you some feedback. So I think like this is something um, we're trying to get the word out and trying to get, uh, you know, with the pandemic, we're, we're also make, making everything online. So uh, I think we can get a lot of really useful information and do some of these um, training studies online. So that would be a recommendation. And are you looking for more subjects for your research? Yeah. Yep. So we're looking for more uh, participants and then also to, um, you know, we're we're also happy just to kind of say, oh, here's, you know, here's how I performed and here's my my here's what's kind of happening in my daily life. And we can kind of give you some, I think one of the useful things that we can provide is we've tested a lot of people with, with face blindness and, uh, or prosopagnosia and we can say, Oh yeah, this is, this is, you're right in the middle. This is what everybody is kind of reports. And, or we can also say, Oh, you know, in, in our, you know, history of testing a couple of hundred people with face blindness, we've never heard of that. So I think that sometimes is useful to know, like, even if you're a prosopagnosic, am I like a, a typical prosopagnosic or, or am I kind of like, you know, a little quirky or different? But I think that what that's one of the things I think we've we've also found that people have enjoyed knowing like um, a little bit more about like, oh, I report all these experiences or I have this really, you know, my, my perception is fine, but I just have this memory problem. And I, so I don't, you know, and then we can say, oh, yeah, that's about, you know, 45 percent of prosopagnosics or um, so I think it's been really useful for people to know that they're not alone. There's a lot of people like them. And also to, to see like, oh, yeah, like there's this fits in with a lot of the other things people are experiencing. Yeah, it's so fun to get on the um, prosopagnosic 
uh, Facebook group because I feel like it's like a lot of people who had the same childhood as mine and, you know, someone will write like, does anyone else like only make friends with very distinctive looking people? And I was like, oh my God, all my friends had blue hair or, <laughs> you know, and it's, um, I, it's fun to find out you're not alone. It's kind of, it helps with the feeling of isolation living in a world where everyone kind of looks like a stranger. Yeah, I'm just curious, how did you land on oxytocin as a treatment? So the oxytocin treatment wasn't um, our lab that that kind of spearheaded that. That was Sarah Bate um, uh, and uh, and her colleagues. But but oxytocin has kind of been thought of this as this kind of trust neuropeptide that is about um, you know facilitating social bonds and and things like that. And also has it may have a slight dark side to it too, where maybe you facilitate in-group bonds, but not out-group bonds. So that's another uh, conversation. But I think that oxytocin has thought of, um, they've looked on on some of these genes that are related to oxytocin. Um, and that's kind of, there's there's some candidate um, genes that may be involved in both, you know, autism and prosopagnosia. So, that, so there's a little bit of a higher incidence of prosopagnosia, prosopagnosia in people with, um, who are on the autism spectrum. So, this is, you know, so I think this idea of um, that oxytocin is kind of this social neuropeptide, it may have to do with kind of um, forming social bonds or, you know, face processing. Um, uh, and that, that's kind of why they, um, yeah, so it's also kind of this idea of like trust and, and uh, maybe engagement with faces. So it's kind of trying to improve attention and engagement with faces was the idea. Given that it's uh, situated in a, a physical part of the brain, has anyone looked at a possible surgical intervention? Um, I think I think the surgical. So yeah, I guess I, I just to quickly kind of go over the the um, in the brain. I think the brain um, with faces is so one of the things about um, why faces are so much so studied in neuroscience is you have you know and, and this is back in the '90s uh, by Nancy Kenwisher at MIT and others. Um, you know, across um, in many different labs, they found this. There's this little region about the size of the tip of your pinky that just really responds to faces uh, more than a, anything other, um, any other kind of visual input. And you know, this fuse—they call it the fusiform face area. Now they've also found that there's this one back a little further in the visual processing stream called the occipital face area, and there may be even subcomponents of the fusiform face area. But it's these kind of modular. It's probably one of the only systems in the brain that is organized in a modular way, meaning like you kind of have these little nodes that do most of the work. Um, so, um, so the interesting thing is, is like all of our prosopagnosics have these regions. It's not like there there are holes there in their brain where you'd think a face area. Their their fate their brain regions light up to faces. Um, now we're finding that their their face areas are not as selective, meaning they don't prefer faces over other uh, stimuli and other visual objects as much as someone without prosopagnosia. And we even find that that their face areas may be a little thicker, which means that like early in development, your your cortex is really thick and actually as uh, you think thinner is, is, um, is, is worse, but sometimes uh, in the brain, thinner and more dense is kind of how it means that you're making more connections. And um, so we kind of find that some of the, um, the developmental prosopagnosics have thicker face areas and not as well connected to other brain regions like 
your hippocampus, which is involved in like memory. So in these, and these anterior temporal lobes, which are involved in like retrieving somebody's name and how you know them. So, um, so it is, it's this really interesting, um, uh, thing where the, you know, the, the developmental prosopagnosics we've studied have all of the structures there. They're just not optimized. Um, they're not as connected. They're not as working as efficiently. They're not as like selective. And so I think like, you know, you, you brought up a surgical intervention. I think sometimes people have tried to do uh, brain stimulation non-invasively. So they haven't um, kind of opened up somebody's skull to uh, do something really invasive, but they've tried <laughs> yeah, to do that's it. pretty radical. Yeah, that's pretty radical. But um, it's actually, and, and there hasn't been much uh, positive results with the non-invasive brain stimulation, but they found that these patients who have, you know, one of the things they wanted to do is figure out is the face area really, you know, important and, and, and necessary for face processing and face recognition. So in this person who had epilepsy, they put electrodes in their face area. And when they stimulated the face area, they reported that as I were, as they were looking at somebody's face, it like transmogrified and kind of melted and changed. And so this is really, I mean, it's fascinating and it really made everybody believe like, Oh, this isn't just, you know, uh, like some kind of epiphenomenon. This little brain region is very much at the hub of what we're doing with faces and face recognition. And, you know, these, these epilepsy, um, this epilepsy patient would report that you just changed to somebody else. As soon as they, they stimulated this brain area, they said, oh, you became somebody else. So I don't know if they're going to try that treatment for prosopagnosia anytime soon, but it's very fascinating. And it really shows how um, specialized, uh, these brain regions are. And, and also why this is a very kind of, in terms of a developmental disorder, this is a very specialized disorder. A lot of developmental disorders like, like ADHD or, or even autism spectrum disorders, the, the it, like lots of the brain region, like many, many brain regions have been implicated with, with prosopagnosia. It's like, we're dealing with these little small, specific, selective areas. And um, I think that's also from a neuroscience perspective, why it's been so fascinating to, to, to understand. And if we can actually improve uh, face recognition, how do these little small nodes change? Are they making more connections? Are they getting thinner? <laughs> Are they activating in a more selective manner? So this is one of the things that we can use this disorder to help us understand a lot more about what they call neuroplasticity, which is kind of how the brain changes with, with, um, experience. And, um, so I'm, we're, as you can tell, I'm, we're pretty excited about this possibility. Uh, but again, we're still scratching the surface. This is still the beginning. You know, you don't need brain surgery. All you need is like facial recognition and glasses, right? Like <laughs> if the, the technology already exists, it's being used in people's home security, you know, systems. Um, but for privacy reasons and because everyone thinks it's creepy, uh, they won't put it in glasses. Um, but it's my dream. I, I wish that like, if you had a, if you like could prove that you were face blind or something, you could get these, you'd have magic glasses that would tell you who everyone is. And you're, I think that'd be amazing. Okay. That leads me to the last question I want to throw to you, Sadie, which is if, if you could cure this, would you do so? Or are you so accustomed to living with face blindness that you couldn't imagine living any other way? Oh my God. I love to cure it. I mean, I would really like to see what faces look like to everyone 
who isn't face blind. I get the feeling that there's actually a qualitative difference. And, um, and similarly, I would like to have binocular vision too. Like I would like to be able to see things in three dimensions. So I think that, I mean, I do think it's been a huge part of my sort of personality growing up, but I'm 40 or something. I'm 41, I guess. And, um, anyway, and I feel like, you know, I've cap fully capitalized on the brand, my old brain, my brain and the, you know, why not try something new now? Well, thank you for, for joining me today. It's been really interesting. I really enjoyed it. And Sadie, it was great to see you again. It's been a while. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. All right. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on our website at www.speakingofpsychology.org or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, email us at speakingofpsychology at apa.org. That's speakingofpsychology, all one word, at apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Condian. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills. Shh.